There are three, just like John 3. There are three crucial, critical, indispensable keys to unlocking and taking advantage of all of the Bible's life-giving, soul-saving, faith-building teachings. Three of them, and I'm giving them to you this morning. Those three keys are, number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, and most importantly of all, context. Context, context, context. Although the word context does not appear in the text, it is the most important word outside the text to help with our understanding of the text. Perhaps a good way to remember the word context is it keeps us from conning the text. It keeps us from misunderstanding, misapplying, and missing out on what the text is truly trying to teach us. In other words, it is the context that helps us to rightly divide the word and hence helps us to save both ourselves and our hearers. 2 Timothy 2.15, 1 Timothy 4.13-16. So now that we understand the importance of context, what is it? I mean, it doesn't do any good to understand the importance of something if you have absolutely no clue what it means. What is context? Merriam-Webster defines context as, number one, the parts of a discourse that surround a word or passage and can throw light on its meaning. Number two, the interrelated conditions within which something exists or occurs, its environment, its setting. That's what context is. Hence the idea of context, the benefit of context, can be easily illustrated and understood as this. And don't worry about copying all this down, it's taking notes. You're gonna see the same slide about three times before we get done this morning. Understanding a word, a phrase, a comment, or a particular Bible verse or passage in light of its immediate surrounding interrelated spiritual and textual environment in which God placed it in order to best shine the light of its true meaning and application upon it. It's got to be taken within that circle in which it occurs. It's got to be taken within those texts and those words that it occurs. God put it in that place for a specific reason. I've often said to people studying the Bible, if you want to know the meaning of a verse, you've got to read about 10 verses before it, about 10 verses after it, so that we don't take it out of context. Conversely, it is very easy for us to see and understand why if we do take it out of its context, if we do take it out of its God-given environment, if we do take it out of its surroundings, and either insert it into another set of surroundings that are foreign to it, or if we seek to make it stand alone, that verse or that word can leave us in a very dark and isolated spiritual place. The idea of this 
A good illustration of what I'm trying to get across this morning can be illustrated by the game of Jenga. You probably all play Jenga. How, who hasn't played Jenga? There's a few in every crowd. Okay. <laughs> Jenga is a very simple game. You have this, this stack of wooden blocks, and you go around the table, as many players as you got, and you take out one here, and you take out one there, and whoever makes the tower falls loses. That's, that's Jenga. When you start out, there's variations, but that's the most basic. When you start out, you've got a really good-looking tower. You square it up. Looks all, for those of us with OCD, you know, you square it up and you use the box, and it looks really good, right? Scripture's like that. Scripture, every verse leans on other verses. It's, it's complete. It's perfect. There's no holes in it. It's, it's, it's solid. That's, that's Scripture. Jesus said in John 10, 35, that Scripture cannot be broken. What that means is, is, is we can't break it down and take verses out of context. But this idea of context can be likened to a life and death game of winner-take-all spiritual Jenga, wherein when the tower falls, everybody loses. Many have already lost because what they've done with the tower that is on your left, my right, they've begun to pick pieces and verses out of context, out of their environment, and so their understanding of the scriptures has gotten weaker because when you pull one, you've got to pull more that go with it, and before long, the whole thing falls down. And so this idea of context can be seen in leaving it in its originally occurring environment. Let me give you some examples of how this can work. What if some people had heard that the Bible was a book filled with fear? Mark did an excellent job Wednesday night with his devotional on fear. What if somebody heard, oh, I, don't, I don't want to study the Bible because the Bible is a book full of fear. Well, to begin with, they're right. The word fear occurs in the scriptures some 367 times in 354 verses in the New King James Version. That's a whole lot of fear, ain't it? But to say that I don't ever want to study the Bible because it's a book of fear is to take the word fear out of the context in which it applies. It's to pull it out of its context. You see, the word fear does occur in the Bible a lot. But it tells us, number one, what to fear in order to live the best life possible. It tells us, number two, what not to fear in order to live the best life possible. And it tells us, number three, what to fear and not fear in order to be saved and go to heaven. Isn't the Bible a great book? But even though it's full of the word fear, a person who slides fear out of its context of the way it occurs in the scripture can say, I don't want to study that book. It's full of fear. One of my favorite pulling of, and you've probably heard this before. you probably hear it again if I'm here another week or two. Who knows? Um, one of my favorite pulling out of context illustrations is this, how we can make scriptures mean things they were never intended to mean. We all know that in Matthew chapter 27, it is said in verse 5 that Judas went out and hanged himself. We know that, okay? So if you pluck that one verse, like a Jenga block, out of its environment, pull it right out of Matthew 27, slide it out. You take this verse over here in Luke 10 and verse 37 that says, go ye and do likewise, slide it out and put the two together, what have you got? Judas went out and hanged himself. Go ye and do likewise. Now we know the Bible's not telling all Christians to go hang themselves. You've got to take it out of its natural environment in order to get it to say that. And while that may be an absurd illustration in some senses, 
the very real damage that failing to understand how the textual environment or setting surrounding any one verse or setting of verses relates to and relies upon and sheds light upon those around it can be seen today in the religious worlds taking totally out of context, context, John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, as we all know, as we can all quote, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're very familiar with that. The religious world is very familiar. You're probably more familiar with that verse than any other verse in the scriptures. And so how it usually works is, well, John 3.16 says whoever believes and is baptized, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, right, uh, no it doesn't. Uh, God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. So I don't have to be baptized to be saved. Because look right there in John 3.16, all I got to do is believe. That's usually the way it's pictured. That's usually the way it's presented. John 3.16 tells me I don't have to be baptized to be saved. Not only does that statement... John 3.16 says that I don't have to be baptized. All I got to do is believe. Not only does that statement directly contradict a whole mountain of other verses, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15 through 16, Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21, and Colossians 3.12, and a whole host of others. Not only does that, and we all know those, not only does that statement that John 3.16 says I don't have to be baptized to be saved contradict all of those other verses, in order for John 3.16 to say, I don't have to be baptized, you know what you've got to do with it? You have got to pull it totally out of John chapter 3. You've got to take it right away from John chapter 3. You've got to yank that thing out of there like it's the bottom block on a Jenga pile in order to get it to say that baptism is not essential to salvation. And I'm going to prove it to you, and I hope you take notes. If you're open to John chapter 3, question number one when somebody says, see, John 3.16 says, I don't have to be baptized. Number one, who's Jesus talking to? When, John, when Jesus utters the words in John 3.16, who's he talking to? That's important. I'll tell you who he's talking to. He's talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Pharisees. How do I know that? Well, I know that because verse 1 tells us that straight out. That's how I know it. That's question number one. That's answer number one. Okay? Number two. What is the background or the reason for Jesus' statement, which he made to Nicodemus in John 3.16? What's, what's the background that led up to that statement? In other words, what is the context of Jesus' comments in John 3.16? I can tell you what those are, because the Bible tells us all. The context of Jesus' comments to Nicodemus in John 3.16, he's trying to explain to Nicodemus, to, to further explain to Nicodemus, a point that he had made earlier to Nicodemus that Nicodemus was having trouble understanding, verses 9 through 16. Jesus had made a point, Nicodemus wasn't getting it. John 3.16 is, is part of the explanation to Nicodemus to try to get him to understand this statement that Jesus had earlier made or this teaching that Jesus had earlier given. What was that teaching? What, what was that teaching that Jesus had given Nicodemus that Nicodemus didn't understand 
And so Jesus, with his words in John 3.16 and leading up to it, is trying to get Nicodemus to understand. What was that teaching he's trying to get him to understand? Well, let's read it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Follow along. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus has something else to address with Nicodemus, something that Jesus believed was more important, apparently. So it was. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, Jesus, get this, in other words, if I can use today's vernacular, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's telling Nicodemus, now you're thinking in physical terms about, about mother's womb and all of that. Now, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born spiritually of the water and the Spirit, this, this second birth, this being born again. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus don't get it. So here's my question. This question we need to ask people. Was Jesus, in John 3.16, attempting to say that belief alone was enough to save someone when he had just told this same man mere moments earlier, not once, not twice, but three times in verses 3, verses 5, and verse 7, that one must do something else in order to enter the kingdom. Was Jesus telling this man that all you got to do is believe in verse 16 when he just told him three times, you must be born again of the water and the spirit? Was Jesus all of a sudden saying something that contradicted everything he had just said? Was Jesus saying in John 3.16 that belief alone was enough to save one without their baptism? No. When he had just insisted three different times that one must be born again of the water and the spirit, which the only place in the scriptures that the water and the spirit work together is in baptism. Acts 2 and verse 38. An allusion to baptism in order to enter the kingdom. Was Jesus saying belief alone is enough when he had just said you've got to be born again of the water and the spirit the way Peter insisted in Acts chapter 2 on the first day of the church? If Jesus was saying belief is all it takes in verse 16 after he just said three times you must be born again, Jesus was clueless. He was either clueless, lying, or contradicted himself. Those are your only three options, people. That's anybody's three options. He either didn't know what he was talking about, thoroughly confused, or outright lied. We know none of those are the case. So there's no way that John 3.16 is saying all you got to do is believe when he's already insisted that there were three different things that had to be done. So what's the answer? Simply this. Don't miss this. Don't miss the flowing context. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he lets him know you must be born again of the water and spirit to enter the kingdom when it comes. And Nicodemus basically says, I don't get it. And Jesus goes on in this explanation, and during his explanation, he says to Nicodemus, God sent me into the world 
that whosoever believes in me should not perish. Whoever believes in me enough to do what I as Lord have commanded like I have commanded, you must be born again of the water and the spirit. That's the context. Jesus said, you won't perish if you believe me enough to do what I commanded you must do, which he had just told him. That's the context. To pluck it out of that context is a spiritually suicidal Jenga tower. Speaking of context, I want us to also note, because it's not just about the verses that come before, it's about the verses that come after. Speaking of the all-important element of context, please also note that John chapter 3, the chapter which has in the very middle of it this, this statement that everybody knows, John 3, 16, right, right there that so many have pulled out of this pile of verses that surround it. Please notice that the rest of the chapter also, that this verse 16 is, is right there in the middle of is all about baptism as well. Please notice that. Please notice that in the flowing context of John 3, this chapter immediately moves on in verses 22 through 24 of a discussion of Jesus, John the Baptist, and their disciples doing what? Baptizing. A discussion wherein we see that some were upset with Jesus' disciples for, guess what? Baptizing, verses 25 and 6. An account which ends with John's statement to those who were disgruntled about it in verse 36, which says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him in the New King James Version. The New King James Version is not the most accurate translation of this text, and I will tell you why and what the better and more accurate translation of verse 36 is, which some of the other very literal Bibles actually translate it as. The first Greek word translated believes in verse 36, he who believes, is spelled P-I-S-T-E-U-O. And that word means, according to Strong's outline of biblical usage, it means to be persuaded of, to place confidence in. It is used in the New Testament of conviction and trust. The first word believes there, he who believes, means to have conviction and trust. However, the second word, as we get to it, where it says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe, the second word believe, that's a whole different word. That's not the same word at all. It doesn't mean the same thing. That second Greek word that is translated does not believe is the word apetheo, which is spelled A-P-E, ape, I-T-H-E-O. It is a word, catch this, don't miss this, church, it is a word that not only indicates the presence of belief or trust or faith, but it also focuses strongly on the action that must flow out of such a faith. That word focus, that second word translated belief does not believe, that, that word focuses on the action that flows out of the belief of the first word in the text. That Greek word 
means, in part, to refuse belief in obedience or not to comply with. That word translated, but he who does not believe, means to reject obedience, to refuse belief in obedience, not to comply with. It is a word that focuses more on the compliance and the obedience. This is why many translations translate it this way. The American Standard Version translates verse 36. He that believeth is convicted. On the Son hath eternal life. But he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life. Do you see the difference? The New American Standard says the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the son does not have life. That second word believe is more about doing what you do because you have a conviction like the first belief. The two others, the English Standard Version says whoever believes in the son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. And even the very loose and very liberal uh, Good News translation recognizes the difference between those two Greek words when it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever disobeys the Son will not have life. See, John chapter 3 is not about simply believing in Jesus. John chapter 3 from beginning to end is about believing in Jesus enough to do what he said and obey him, which, which includes you must be born again of the water and the spirit. That whole chapter, its whole context, that whole chapter is about that. You see, the bottom line is on John 3.16, there is no way on this planet to take John 3.16 to say that belief or faith alone is all you need to be saved unless you completely rip it out of John 3. Because John 3 from beginning to end is about belief enough to obey, obey enough or believe enough to obey him when it comes to being born again of the water and the spirit. See, the entire chapter it's not about, somebody says, John 3 is all about denying the essentiality of baptism. No, it isn't. John chapter 3 is all about you've got to be baptized. And 16 is right in the middle of it. You've got to believe him enough to do it. You see, that's John 3. Nothing pulled out, nothing messed up, no tower fallen. And the moment anybody rips John 3.16 out of its context, Here's the thing, once you rip John 3.16 out of its context to say that faith alone is enough, then you've got to rip out a bunch of other verses. You've got to start tearing down all those other verses that say that baptism now saves you. You've got to rip those out. And you know what happens when you keep ripping the verses out? You know what happens that pretty picture of scripture that's complete and perfect like God tells us it is? You know what? You do that, you're going to be left with nothing but a disconnected pile of rubble and destruction when it comes to your eternal soul on judgment day. The whole tower's going to fall. Another great example of this uh, that I heard in class yesterday at Momentum, a class entitled Come and See. By the way, Momentum was outstanding. A man named Corey Collins, a good brother and gospel preacher, did this class, Come and See, and as I listened to what he had to say, I thought, I gotta go home and rework the middle part of my sermon. This is just too good to leave out of the context sermon I've got done, so I did. So here it is, here, here's what I want you to see. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I'll show you this whole context deal again. 
And Mark chapter 8 is one of the, if I can use the, the terminology, and I mean no irreverence or disrespect, in Mark chapter 8 is one of the strangest, weirdest healings that Jesus ever did. Mark chapter 8, I want you to see this. I saw this and I went, wow, why didn't I ever? You, have, you ever had that happen, right? Somebody shares something, man, why didn't I think of that? Well, I never thought of this till yesterday, and I was almost ashamed of myself as long as I've been a Christian. Mark chapter 8, I want us to look at this weird healing, beginning at verse 22. He came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. What on ever on earth? For? Jesus could have, he, why do you lead him out of the town? Scriptures? Could Jesus have healed him on the spot? Yes. Could Jesus have healed him long distance? Yes. He took him out of town. Why did he take him out of town? We'll get to that. Just a good question. You let, that, let that simmer a little bit, if you will. Took him by the hand, led him out of town. When he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. He looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. He went away to his house. Now, <laughs> not only question comes up, why did Jesus take him out of why did Jesus have to do it twice? Was Jesus just not powerful enough the first time? No, that, we, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. But Jesus had to take two attempts. Was it that this guy was so blind that Jesus didn't have power to get it right the first? No, 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 no. So what's the deal? We saw that Jesus tried the first time, and this guy didn't really see. He could see things like trees, like, you know, people like trees walking, but, but his vision wasn't real clear, and, and so Jesus had to help him and, and clarify it more. This good brother yesterday said that this verse had been alluded to sort of by the fake faith healer Oral Roberts because once when he supposedly was doing a miracle on somebody and it didn't work the first time, he said, well, that's all right. Even Jesus didn't do it right all the time. That's a complete, that, that's yanking it out of context. So, so what's, the, what's the deal here? What's the deal? Well, the answer to all these questions, as well as clearing up the confusion, can be seen in the context, right? Let's check out what goes before this. Start with me in verse 13. He left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and they didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat. He charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to him, why do you reason because you have no bread? Jesus wasn't talking about bread. They didn't get it again. Jesus said, why are you talking about bread? Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is, is your heart still hardened? Watch this. Having eyes do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And, and don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of the fragments did you take up? And they said 12. And he said, well, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many did you take up? And they said seven. He said, well, how come you don't get it then? That's what happens before the two-take healing of the blind man. And I, and I want you to think about this, what happened before it for, for just a minute. First off, Jesus wasn't talking about normal bread. 
And secondly, Jesus points out that, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You remember what happened with the 5,000, how I managed to feed them, and the 4,000, and you're worried about 13 of us on this boat? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, and you're not even thinking in the right terms. You're not even thinking, you, you, don't, you don't see. You don't see. You don't see. And then after this incident where he heals the man, in verses 27 and following, watch what it says. Context. Jesus and his disciples went out from the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked the disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And Peter answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. See, the way this brother put this in there, it, it, look, the disciples are arguing about bread on the boat, not understanding. They don't see. See, did they, did they understand to a degree who Jesus was? S to some degree, did they understand who Jesus was? To, to a small degree. See, they could see him, but they didn't have a clear picture of who Jesus was. You, you're beginning to see the context here? They, they, they understood to a degree who Jesus was. They could, they could sort of see who he was, but they didn't have this full perception. Their, their vision wasn't clear as to who Jesus was on the boat. And he said, don't you see? Then he has this opportunity in Bethsaida to take this man out. Takes this man out of the city so that just the disciples, whom he just had this discussion with about not seeing him for who he was, just them could watch what he did. And with just them... Not the city, not this wasn't for the public. This was a teaching moment for this, a Kodak moment for the disciples to teach them something. And so Jesus only partially healed this guy. The guy could see, but he couldn't really see. Then Jesus let him see for real. And as we go on and look at this later, if I may paraphrase what happens next after that healing, Jesus says to them, who do people see me as? Who do they say I am? And they said, well, John the Baptist, Elijah. He said, but who do you say I am? Who do you see me as? You, you see me. Do you really see me? And, and Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Christ. The son. Peter says, man, I can see you. And I could almost picture Jesus saying, oh, yeah? Because then Jesus goes on to start explaining, guess what? I'm going up and be crucified. What does Peter say? Never, Lord. This will never happen to you. See, Peter saw Jesus and he he confessed Jesus, and, and he, could, he could see Jesus was the Christ, but his perception wasn't clear enough that he could see this was the same one who had to be crucified. He didn't have the full picture. And I have to believe the way it is positioned in Scripture that this man that they took out of the village and took out just so the disciples could see it served as a wonderful illustration or was supposed to for these disciples to say, yeah, yeah, you see me, but you don't really see me. You need to really clearly see who I am because Peter still didn't. And I thought that's the flow of the text. That's the, that's the way the, the thing plays out. And so Jesus helps Peter clarify his vision with the rest of that chapter. And that's how that fits in there. That's the context it occurs in. Uh, one final place that I want to take us to where we can be tempted to make this, this fatal move of pulling verses out of context and, and toppling all of the scriptures and any hope we have of eternal life is in Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, and hopefully you'll never play another game of Jenga without thinking about this lesson and at least the punchline of it. Another place where we are tempted to make that fatal move, or some people are, where they're willing to take one verse out of its context, like, like John 3.16, or one story and, and pluck it out of its naturally occurring scriptural environment, and that is with Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean to people? I'll tell you what it means to some people. You do anything you want, and I can do anything I want, and we'll both just answer to God on Judgment Day, and it's okay if we take different paths to the same God. It's okay if we have different faiths and different beliefs and different churches and, and different things that, that we believe. You believe God don't do this, and I believe God does do that, and you don't believe this. And I, But we're just working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. I can do whatever I want. I can, I can make God fit into my mold, and you make God fit into your mold, and we'll both just all go to heaven and be happy ever after because you can work out your own salvation. Just because you believe that, that the Bible says that, I don't believe that, so I can believe this, and we're, and we're both good. That's the way this verse can be used. But in order for it to say that, you've got to take it out and spill all of Scripture. And I'll show you why. Neither the immediate, intermediate, or even general overall context of Philippians lends itself to that kind of conclusion when you look at it. Like each of the preceding two examples that I have given you, you've got to rip that phrase out of the, even the sentence it occurs in in order for it to mean that. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians 2.12, look at it. Look at, look at even the, the sentence it occurs in. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Stop the presses. This verse doesn't say that it's okay for you to go do whatever you want to do, and I'll go do whatever I want to do, and it's okay if it's obedience to God or it's not in accordance. That verse doesn't say that. The verse starts right out with you've got to obey God. That's first and foremost. Right in the very sentence itself. You can't rip that out of there. Your tower falls. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. It's not about what you think is right. It's not about what you want to do. It's not about some false conclusion you've come to that disobeys God. It is about obeying God. That's the context doing it God's way, and letting God work in you. It is within that context you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is within that set of guidelines that you work out your own salvation and trembling. It is within that context that you work it out. Let's look what comes before and after. What comes before this? Let's prove it. What comes before it? Jesus being obedient to God. Is that right? Made, humbled himself, became what? Obedient even to the point of death on the cross, right? The discussion is about <coughs> obedience. That's the context. That's what leads up to the sentence that demands obedience to God and has that phrase in it, work out your own salvation. But it's also what comes after it. Look at verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may become harmless, I'm sorry, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. 
That ain't talking about it's okay to do anything you want. He says you need to do what's in the word. Yeah, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but within the parameters and context of you always obey God's word. Always. Lest he says, I have run in vain. Okay. That's the immediate context. What about the broader, more intermediate context? How do the verses a little further out, how do, how do the verses that are a little further away, like blocks in a Jenga pile, how about the ones that are a little further away, how do those kind of flow? How do those support and strengthen the truth that, that even though I'm going to work out my own salvation trembling, it's got to be within the parameters of obedience to God that I do that? Well, pretty easy. Look at verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men, and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, as we've talked about, obedient to the point of death on a cross. As we said, that's what leads up to it. About verses 17 through 30, you know what those are about? Pouring yourself out in obedient service to others, even when it hurts. This whole chapter is about that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's, 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 it's got nothing to do with you can do whatever you want, and it's between you and God. That is the further, this chapter isn't even close to that. whole chapter is about obeying God and working out your own salvation with fear and trembling in the midst of that. So let's look at the final phase. Let's, 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 let's back up. Let's zoom the lens. Let's look at the whole epistle of Philippians. Let's look at how 2.12, in that little phrase, we've looked at it in its immediate context of its sentence, its immediate surrounding verses, a few verses out from it. Now let's look at it in the overall context of Philippians 2. What's Philippians 2 about? Uh, I'm Philippians, the whole book. It is believed, and I've preached on this before, and there's good, good proof to support that the book of Philippians is written, the main point of Philippians is because in Philippi, you got two warring factions. you got two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who are, were faithful co-workers, but they've got this big issue between them, okay? And so Paul writes to the Philippians, he tells them a lot of nice things, but, but he wants that situation resolved. And so he begins talking early on in Philippians about humility, about honoring others above yourself, about, about putting, in chapter three, putting stuff aside that, that is in the past and, and, and reaching forward. And, and, and he leads up to where he says, Yodi and Syndicate, they've got to work this out. And, and all of that kind of has to do with that. And, and even after he says that in chapter 4, in verses 2 and 3, he talks about rejoicing. You, you need to, chapter 3, leave the past behind. You need to, chapter 2, put others ahead of yourself. And, and you need to get together and go on your way, chapter 4, rejoicing. And so the whole book is about resolving this conflict because certainly they were not of one mind. Paul says they were to be of one mind, everybody, Philippians 1.27 and following. And maybe there was some envy and strife between these two ladies, some envy, some strife, and some selfishness, because Paul already brought that up and kind of planted those seeds in chapter 1, verse 15. In chapter 2, 1 through 4, he ties together selfishness and envy and ambition and striving together. And then he goes on in the book to address that Christ-like attitude that we're all to have, chapter 2, and within that framework, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. How does it work? 
Here's how it works. I'm sorry, let me go back just a little. Chapter 3 explains how both worldliness as well as looking back at the past, both had to go if they were ever going to move forward and make it to heaven together. Finally, in chapter 4, he said they all had to stand fast in the Lord, help these two factions, these two women, to iron out their differences, and get on with the consummate rejoicing they all should have had in Christ. Why? Because of the power and the presence and the providence of the God of peace amongst them. So how does it work? Here's how it works. When he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's telling every member of that congregation, every single member, within this framework and context of obedience to God and helping these two ladies resolve their problems, you've got to work out how you as an individual are going to help make that happen. That's the context. Simple as that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling doesn't mean go off do whatever you want. How are you going to be humble, be selfless, Make sure you're all of one mind. What are you going to do personally to make sure within that framework where God, the God of peace who wants to be with you as you rejoice together but can't right now because of these two warring factions and these two women, how are you as an individual work out your own self? Do it without grumbling. Do it without complaining. How are you going to make that happen? That's the specific context. Chapter 2 and verse 12. And, and listen, all of these texts, have an infinite amount of applications to us in other situations. We know that. We understand that, that we all need to work out our own salvation in, in everything, right? But it's got to be within the context of obedience. And so all of these verses, John 3, 16, and, and all of them, they have numerous applications to us in numerous situations. But their specific context, they can't just be yanked out of because the moment they do, our whole faith falls on its face because we're not trusting God anymore. While they apply to us and we need to, it can never be at the compromise or expense of our obedience to God because the moment it is, we take them out of context. And to study the Bible without this understanding of context is like a spiritually deadly game of Jenga. Please don't come to me after and say, well, don't these verses apply to us? We've had that discussion. Yes, they do. But let's make sure that when we apply them to ourselves, like John 3.16, that we don't yank them out of their context to mean something totally different than God did. Because even in their application to us, they must still be in the context God placed them the first hour. Because the minute we start doing the middle tower, we're going to wind up with the third tower. And brethren, none of us can afford for that tower to fall on us and lose our eternal souls. Let's keep the word of God in context. Three rules. Context, context, oh yeah, and context. This morning, if you're here and you've heard this lesson, really heard this lesson, and you've come to understand that, hey, wait a minute, I always used to think belief alone was enough based on, but I can see based on John 3 that that's, that's not, wow, that whole chapter is about my need to believe in him enough to obey him. And you understand that you must be born again of the water and the spirit or you can't enter the kingdom. 
You say, I want to do that. Well, that has to do with being baptized, immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And maybe you're somebody here who's struggled to understand context, and maybe you've misapplied some things. You just need the prayers of the church to be a better Bible student. If there's anything at all that we can do to help you get your life more in the context of the scriptures, we would love to assist you this morning right now. Let us know what you need as we stand and as we sing.